Good morning, everyone. Um, turn with me to Acts chapter 10. That's a beautiful song because um, there's an invitation, right? The invitation is to see, uh, to see and to sit with the living Savior. And, and one of the ways we do that this morning is by opening up God's word and studying it. We're jumping back into our um, slow hike. How many of you like hikes? Raise your hand. Good. So we're hiking. Um, if you talk to Denny Adams, he likes to do these adventure hikes that is just not my thing. Like, let's go sleep and not bathe for four days and then lose our breath as we're climbing the mountain. And oh, by the way, you might die. Yeah, no, that's not. Hiking it is like, oh, the Marriott is full and we have to stay at the Holiday Inn for me. Um, that's, that's a slow hike into those doors and the buffet table, yeah. Um, Sorry, um, I'm in a mood this morning. Um, it's a slow hike into the book of Acts. Here's why it's important for us to study God's word really slowly. Um, and the reason why we're, we're talking about the book of Acts is because if we want to be the church of Jesus Christ, if we want to be the church of God and we want to experience and see God do things in, in ways that we haven't imagined before, then we ought to do the things that um, we see in scripture. We ought to do the things that we see in the book of Acts. And I've said this before, the book of Acts, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive, but there are principles in the book of Acts, like we'll talk about today, that ought to be applied to everyday life, that should be applied to us um, in our life. And the title of today's sermon is God Shows No Partiality. I'm terrible at coming up with titles, so like that was the one that I picked because it's right out of the verse that we'll focus on at the end of the sermon. So turn with me, Acts chapter 10. We're gonna be taking a big, huge part of the chapter. Um, we're gonna be in nine through 35. The reason why we're taking a huge part of this chapter is because it's very narrative. There's, there's a lot of details um, about things that are happening and I think we can, we can succinct them by having a conversation about those things. Um, so turn with me, page 918 in the pew back Bible in front of you, you don't have a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, here at the chapel, we study God's word. We believe in the power of God's word. So if you don't own a Bible, you can take that Bible. That's our gift to you. Okay, so we're gonna be in Acts chapter nine, I mean, excuse me, 10, verses nine through 35. What has happened already? If you remember some weeks back, we focused on Acts chapter nine, I mean, excuse me, 10, I don't know why I'm saying that now. That's gonna be a thing. Um, we focused on the first eight verses in, in, in chapter 10. And here's what we, what we know already, what we've already experienced um, through our study is that the gospel is, is moving forward and the church is growing. How do we know that God is doing this? Well, we see actually in Acts chapter one, verse eight, which is the key verse. If you wanna know what the key verse of Acts chapter, uh, of the book of Acts, it's found in verse um, eight of chapter one. That's the key verse. And in fact, there's a key word in the book of Acts that we see often many times, and we'll see it on the screen. Acts chapter one, verse eight is the key passage of the entire book, and I wanna remind you of it. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Notice that word witnesses, right? You will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem. Where else? In Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
and what we see here is that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is going to empower the church, is going to empower the members of the church to be his witnesses. What's a witness? The idea that we see in Acts chapter one, verse eight, the word witness has like a legal term. It's the idea of someone who, with the same word that we would use in our legal um, terminology as well. It's someone who's been an eyewitness to an event and they provide a full and accurate account of what has taken place, of what has happened. In fact, that is um, the idea in Acts chapter one, verse eight. And we actually see that all throughout the book of Acts. When you think about Peter's sermon in Solomon's particle, like what does, he, what does he testify of? Of what he has seen in the work of Jesus Christ, particularly his death, burial, and resurrection. What does Stephen testify to? He's an eyewitness account of the, of, of the ministry of Jesus. What does, what does Philip testify to? What does John testify to? In fact, what does Paul testify to in his conversion? His account of the work and ministry of Jesus, right? What Christ has accomplished on the cross and what he's doing now. And in fact, we see this 20 times in the book of Acts. The word witnesses comes up. In fact... The, we get our martyr word in English from this Greek word, witness. The church will be witnesses to the ends of the earth and oftentimes, many times, they will have to give their lives for it. So the spirit of God has appointed the church, the family of God to testify of the work of Christ, right? And I think, and I think it's interesting that he uses this idea like a legal term in this passage because I think in, in some sense, the world has falsely put God on trial. I'm not saying that that's true, but I'm saying that the world has falsely put God on trial and God has to defend himself like his existence, his power, his glory, his manifestation in the world, his activity in his son, the work of the spirit. And, and they have not realized the world, the unbelieving world has not realized is that God is not on trial. We are. We're on trial. And the point of the witnesses is to testify of the work of Christ so that we can come to know who Christ is and be vindicated from that trial. Side note, I have a guilty pleasure this last couple of weeks and I'm kind of upset it's over. I've been keeping up to date with the Johnny Depp trial. Okay, don't make fun of me, okay? I love a good train wreck and I just like, it's one of those things that you just gotta watch. Um, and if you've been keeping up with the Johnny Depp trial, okay, side note, I didn't watch it every day. I just watched the clips at night um, for a couple of hours. <laughs> yes, I am team Johnny. I am with him. I was like, oh my gosh, somebody save Johnny. I'll do it. I want to be on the jury. If you've been keeping up, um, one of the ways that um, he won the trial is through witnesses. His um, uh, team kept bringing up people on the stand who were really good, who, who defended him really well. Um, they did a really good job. Um, the other side did not. That's why they lost. Um, and and I, I was reminded of that in this passage is because like 
the, the apostles, the, the members of the church, the members of the family of God, like in some sense, are witnesses in that way, defending the truth, speaking the truth, right? Giving an account to what they have experienced. We often see this, right? Like when we're sharing the gospel with other people, what do we give an account to? The events of the word of God and also what Christ has done in us, right? So when you're sharing the gospel, when I often share the gospel with people, I say like what the word of God is true, this is how I know it's true. And this is what Christ has done in me. I used to be wayward. I used to be a sinner. I used to follow after the patterns of the world. I hated God. I want nothing to do with God. I wanted to live my life. I wanted to party. I wanted to drink. I wanted to, to do everything and everyone. But then yet God saved me through the work of the cross and the gospel, right? Like that's a eyewitness account. And that's what we see in this passage. We're gonna see this, that Peter once again is gonna be an eyewitness. He is going to witness to a group of people who, who oftentimes, in fact, all the time, in the, in the New Testament, were ostracized and rejected. He's going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 10, verse 9. Join me there. 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. This is noontime. This is not the typical time to pray. Um, this is the time to eat. And he finds himself praying. The men who Cornelius has sent for Peter, because Cornelius was spoken to by an angel in a vision to go get Peter so that Peter can come and testify, be a witness of the gospel, has sent them. And as he's having this vision, right, they're, uh, they're approaching the city, verse 10, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell in a trance. Trance is another word for vision. And saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. I think Luke is drawing our attention once again to what happened to Stephen, right? He said that when Stephen was being killed, the heavens opened up, right? Jesus gets baptized, right? And we see the Trinity, what happens? The heavens open up, right? Like we're seeing a revelation in this vision. God is going to communicate to Peter right now. Um, and this is the way he's going to communicate by opening up the heavens. Verse 12. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Reminds you of the Genesis story. And they came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Why should Peter kill and eat? Well, because Luke tells us he's hungry. When you're hungry, you eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Wait a minute. What's happening here? There, there's all types of foods. That, there's all types of animals for him to kill. What, what, why can't he eat? Verse 15, and the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to the heaven. Like I said before, it's noontime. 
Peter gets a vision. And it's a sheet that's descending on the entire earth. And we see all types of animals on this sheet. And it happens three times. Why is three, the number three, important here? Because it's commuting um, emphasis. It's communicating um, the validity of this vision. And three times it's descending and, and he refuses to eat, right? It's almost like a test for Peter. Remember the test before that he failed? Three times he denied Jesus. And it's like he's standing before the Lord and it's like he's being tested again. Should I eat? And he can't eat. Why can't he eat? Because in Leviticus chapter 11, there were dietary laws. We know them as kosher laws. There were purity laws. And in the book of Leviticus, God gives laws to Moses and Aaron on how to live. And one of the ways the people of God lived is by having a strict diet. There were certain foods they could not eat. There were foods that they could eat. Um, if they eat those foods that were, were prohibited by God, then they had to, to do a, a cleansing ritual. So, so Peter tells us that he's never eaten anything that's unclean. He's telling us that he has observed the dietary laws of the nation of Israel. Right? And why did God give those laws? Why did God give the purity laws? Why did he have them eat only certain kinds of foods and prohibited them from eating other kinds of foods? And it's because he wanted them to be holy. The purpose of the purity laws in the Old Testament was so that his people can be in step, can be in line with his character. And the character that he wants them to, to have is holiness to keep in God, in God's character of holiness, because God is holy. But, but here's the problem, here's the problem with this passage. Do you, guys, do you guys know what the problem is in this passage? The problem with this passage is that we already know that Christ has died. He has risen. And in fact, Christ has abolished the law. The, the Jewish Christians are no longer under the law. Why are they no longer under the law? It's because the law was always insufficient. The law could not save them. The law could not provide life. The law, in fact, just pointed to their sin, right? Like, as they observed the law, they looked at the law and said, I can't keep every single law. And because they couldn't keep every single law, then they couldn't keep their own sanctification. They couldn't keep their own saving. Like, like the law pointed to their sin. It pointed to their transgression. It pointed to the fact they couldn't keep every single one of them. Christ has already died. He has risen. He's abolished the law. Why would Peter continue to live under the law? I think the reason why Peter and many of the Christian Jews, in fact, this is the struggle that they've always had, especially in the New Testament. The reason why I think oftentimes they loved living under the law, and we see this in denominations, is because the law gave them a false sense of security over their own salvation and sanctification. It gave them power over themselves. If I do this and don't do this, then I am in right standing before God. I grew up in a church, Pentecostal church, that was very legalistic. 
I had to dress a certain way on Sunday. I couldn't wear jeans on, quote unquote, the altar. I had to be pure before God and I had to repent of my sins before I did anything in the church. Only certain people were allowed on the stage or the altar. I had to dress a certain way to certain events. Why? Because, because God required holiness. We see this in actually denominations, right? But why do people do it? Like I said, it gives us power because then on a post-it note, we can check off, I did this, I did this, and I did this, and now I'm in good standing with God. Now I'm righteous. But the problem is that the law can't do that for you. The law can't make you right before God. You can't make yourself right before God. The person that can make you right before God is the one who sanctifies you. It's the one, the God, Jesus Christ, who imputes his righteousness, meaning he takes his righteousness and places it on you, and then you stand before a holy God, a holy Father, and what the Father sees is not you and your sin. What he sees is his son's righteousness. What he sees is Christ's blood on you, and he says, I declare you to be right. But that's not the law. The law can't do that. The law can only point to your sin. And I think many of the Christian Jews continued to live out their legalistic way because it gave them power. How do I know this? I'm gonna read to you Mark chapter seven, verse 14. This is what Jesus says about the dietary laws. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone. And understand this, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that, that defiles them. You hear what I said? It's not what goes in, it's what comes out. He says this, Mark 7, verse 17, and he, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it does not go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of their body. And then Mark, what he does is, as an aside, he communicates to the reader, he communicates to the audience. So he's, he's describing what Jesus is saying, and he pauses to talk to us and everyone who would read the gospel, and he says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. See, the vision that Peter had, the vision that God gave to Peter had nothing to do with food. God already established that you can eat whatever you want. What makes you right before God is not what you do, what makes you right before God is what Christ has done in you. What makes you wrong before the Lord is what your heart and mind has done. The vision had nothing to do with food, but had everything what comes out of our heart. Mark tells us God already declared all things clean. But they used the law to continue in their legalistic practice to give them power and control. Think about the temple. 
Think about the temple. The temple was supposed to be the place in which Yahweh would be glorified and magnified, where all the nations would come to worship the living God. And what do you have in the temple? You have the courts for just the Gentiles. So you would walk in, you and I, if we were living in those days, we would not be allowed closer to the presence of God. In fact, we would have to stay in the courts of the Gentiles. And then once you get past the courts of the Gentiles, you move on to the courts of the women. Women couldn't get too close, so they had to stay there. Then if you were a Jewish man, there was the court for the Jewish men. You get closer to, to the presence of God, then there was the courts for the priest. And only the priests could be there. And if you really were special, if you really were an observer of the law and you, you were a Levite priest and it was your time to lead, you were the high priest and only you once a year can go into the presence of God. You know the problem with that is? That was never God's intention. Nowhere in the Old Testament will you ever see God declaring to Moses and Aaron and to King David and Solomon, when you build a temple, I want you to, to divide all the people. God's intention for the temple in the Old Testament is so that all people would come to worship him. But what the religious leaders did is because they took the law, appropriated for themselves, they gave them power and control, they put on laws that the Bible did not put so the temple becomes a place of division, not a place of unity. The temple doesn't become a place of worship. It becomes a place where you're separated by gender, position, and ethnicity. That was never God's intention. God's intention was that all people, all people from all nations would worship him. And the sad part is we do the same thing too. Oh, yeah. Like Christians do it all the time. We come to church. We sit in our row and we don't associate with those people on the other side. Like, we don't have relationships with people who are not Christian. We can't talk to people who live in that neighborhood. We won't buy a house in that neighborhood because we need this type of house. We want to be these type of people. We... We cause division in our church. We only hang out with this ABF. We won't talk to that ABF because we don't like that ABF. We've been in ABF for 30 years and we're cool. They're not cool. We do the same thing in church. We judge people by the color of their skin. We judge people by their gender. We judge people by their position, their socioeconomic position, right? Like I only talk to that person because I know he got money. Don't come talking to me because I don't got no money. <laughs> I got debt, student loan debt. Right? That, that, we do the same thing too. We play the same game. Like we, we don't want to associate with, with the others, right? Like the TV series Lost, the others. So what's the meaning of the vision, right? Like it has nothing to do with food. But yet Peter, if you look at verses 17 to 23, he's thinking about this. Like, what is the meaning of this vision? What is the Lord trying to communicate? And by divine providence, at the moment he's having the vision, three men are coming to the door. He has the vision. The Spirit of God tells him, I sent those men. You go with them. An interesting part in this passage is that Peter invites the Gentile men to come in. That's unheard of. So he's there 
with his Jewish Christians and there's three Gentile men and, and the spirit of God tells him, go with them. So Paul arrives in Caesarea at Cornelius' house. Cornelius has invited a bunch of people. He's invited his family, his friends, his coworkers. Everybody on the block is at his house. And an interesting interaction between Cornelius and Peter and the people there happens. Like Peter walks in, Cornelius comes, and he bows down because he thinks, Cor he thinks Peter is a divine person, maybe a god or something. Because remember, the angel of the Lord in a vision told him to go get him. So in his mind, he's thinking, this person is important. I, I, need, to, I need to worship him. And, and Peter says, no, 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 I'm just a man. But this is interesting what Peter says to the people in the room. Look at verse 28. This is a good introduction, right? Like when you're meeting strangers. He says in verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Come again? Like you walk into someone's house, they've invited you, and you say, you know I'm not supposed to be here. I don't associate with you type of people, but I'm here anyway. Like, great introduction. Have a seat. Why don't you eat with us? It's like, no. Where I'm from is like, oh, let's go outside and talk. In the moment... The Lord is revealing to Peter. And in fact, side note, before I continue on, he says it's unlawful, which is true and not true. Here's, his, here's why it's not true. There is no law, Mosaic law, in the Old Testament that forbid Gentiles to associate with, excuse me, there were no Mosaic laws that forbid Jews to associate with Gentiles. None whatsoever. And he says it's unlawful. Why? Because the religious leaders, over time, placed more laws on the Mosaic law that God never intended. I'm going to prove to you why in just a couple of times. One, King David. When King David was running away from Saul, where does he go? One of the places he runs to, he runs to the king of Tyre and spends time with Hiram, who's not a Jew. The Shemanite woman gets healed by Elisha, who walks into her house to heal her. King Solomon entertains foreigners, particularly the queen of Sheba, right? We often see in the Old Testament that God's heart and desire was for the nations. In fact, God wanted the Jews to be a light to the nations. We often see in the Old Testament the reason why God interacts with the nations is so that his name will be proclaimed to them. But what did the Jews do? They secluded themselves from everyone else because they were the recipients of the law. They were the inheritors of the law. And because they were the keepers of the law, they were special. And the nations weren't special. And because they were special, they can't have any association with Gentiles. So Peter walks into the house and says, it's unlawful for me to be with you. But that's not true. That was never God's intention. That was never the intention of God's heart to have division among people and ethnicities. God's heart, God's desire is that he would see unity among all walks of life, among all nations, people, languages, and ethnicities. It was never meant for one group of people. It was meant for the world to gather together to lift up the name of Yahweh and in the New Testament to lift up the name of Jesus. 
So what's the meaning of the vision, right? We, we kind of already talked about it, but I want to give you a definition of like what the meaning of the vision is and what God is trying to communicate to Peter and what he actually testifies in verse 28. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So the meaning of the vision is the barriers between ethnicities have been torn down by the work of Christ. Meaning there is no such thing as a Latino church. There's no such thing as a black church or a white church or an Asian church. Because the work of Christ has, has tore down the divisions between ethnicities, there's only one church. It's called the church of God. So, so how should the church look? It should look diverse with many people from all walks of life. Many languages, many ethnicities. Oftentimes in American culture and in churches around the world, we've divided ethnicities. And God is saying, I've created everyone in the image of God. I'm the one that created those ethnicities. And for the purpose and sole purpose is to worship me, not to worship the ethnicity. The meaning of the vision is so that Peter would be reminded that God's character is still consistent. Some, some people might look at this and say, has God changed? Jews who would read this would say, has God changed? You might be sitting in the pew and you might be telling yourself, has God changed? Is, is he different from the God of the Old Testament? Because isn't he the one who gave the law? Isn't he the one that gave them the rules and regulations on how to live? Isn't he the one who gave them the purity laws the kosher laws? Wasn't him? Why, is, why does it seem that he's different in the New Testament? The truth is God has not changed. He's always been the same. His character is still the same. This was his plan all along. He, he never created a division between ethnicities. We were the ones that created the division between ethnicities. We were the ones through Adam's sin decided that we weren't going to associate with people, right? Christ and the work of the cross has tore down those boundaries. So has God has changed? No, it was his heart's desire. It was his plan already. What was revealed to Peter is not that a God who has changed, but a God who's remained the same. What was revealed to Peter is not a God who has evolved from his character or his plan. What is revealed to Peter is a God who remains faithful to his character. He's remained faithful to his holiness. He's remained faithful to his grace and his mercy. He has remained faithful to his people. And now he would also be faithful to the Gentile nations. Why do you think Luke includes? And think about this. Luke is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. So I imagine as he's writing this, like this is the inclusion of his life. He is grafted into the branch. He is grafted into the family of God. We are grafted into the family of God. This is why he says in verse 34, look at it. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, 
Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. What Peter realizes now is that God never had a favorite. He gave a special purpose to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, but the purpose was to glorify God. He never gave them, a, he never thought they were better than the nations. And that's a reminder for us this morning. That's a remind us, that's to remind us that we are not better than the world. We're not special in any way other than what the work of Christ has done in our life. That, that's what makes us different, but no better because we continue to sin. We continue to fall short. So my question for you this morning is, who is worthy of the gospel? Who is worthy of the faithfulness of God? Who is worthy to hear the faithfulness of God? Who is worthy to see the mighty works of God? Who is worthy to experience the blessing of the power of the Spirit indwelling them, filling them to good works? Who is worthy of the gospel? Who is worthy of the inheritors of our faith? Everyone ought to hear the gospel. Everyone ought to be recipients of the gospel. Everyone ought to know of the faithfulness of God. Everyone ought to experience the power of the Spirit. And how will they do it if we do not speak? How are we going to do it? We'll just raise up missionaries. No. They will hear the gospel by you and me. The purpose of the vision for Peter was to break down the barriers, but also to help Peter and to help the Jewish Christians in the church realize and remember that God's saving power will go to the Gentiles. And you know who's going to take it? Them. It was a Jew who went to Nineveh to proclaim the gospel. And they too would now have to go to the Gentile world. And you know what they're going to have to suffer? The judgment and criticism of their own people because now they will have to be associated with people that they never wanted to be associated with. Why? Because God is bigger than our ethnicities. So who's worthy to hear the gospel? The people in every place and in every parts of the world. Your coworkers, your friends, your family, your neighbors, the people that you do not like, the people that drive you crazy, that person at work who, who you seem you can't get along with, that that person ought to hear the gospel. That person is worthy to hear the gospel. The question is, are you going to tell them? Or are you just gonna wait? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you've shown us in your word that you have no favorites and that you want to see all people come to you. I ask you, Father God, this morning that you would stir our affections towards Jesus by reminding us that the gospel is meant for all people and that the prejudice that we have in our hearts, the the, the, the difficulties that we have with people that we would be reminded that you came to save them too. Pray, O oh Lord, that 
we will be reminded of your grace and mercy as we interact with the world, the non-believing world. We pray this in Christ's name and the people of God say. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.